0: Hello, and welcome to The Final Ghost Podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. This is Anna, co-founder of The Final Ghost, and your podcast host. Over the next few months, we're tracing the lineage of female monsters in horror cinema. And in each episode, I'm joined by a special guest to dive deep into a monster movie or two. Today's a very special episode for me. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to do the season in the first place, and one of my personal favorite horror films, possibly ever. I'm talking about Ginger Snaps. This Canadian werewolf teen horror, which premiered 20 years ago this year, is, for me at least, one of the very best werewolf movies out there. It's certainly the most interesting one. The film centers on the Fitzgeralds, two death-obsessed sisters outcasts in their suburban community who must deal with the tragic consequences when one of them is bitten by a werewolf. There is so much going on in this film. It's smart, it's funny, it's violent, and at the heart of it, this complicated, conflicted sibling relationship between Bridget and Ginger. If you're into gnarly creature effects, this is a film for you. If you're interested in teen angsty vibes, also a good shout. And if you're recovering emo, then this is a perfect throwback film. I'm extremely pleased that I'm joined in this episode by writer and co-host of the Faculty of Horror podcast, Alexandra West, to try and unpack Ginger Snaps. As always, our conversation will contain spoilers. And if you take away one thing from this series, it's to go and watch Ginger Snaps. Alex, thank you so much for making the time for joining me to talk about Ginger Snaps.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to uh, be here in our respective virtual spaces.
0: Yes, that is a wonderful way of putting it. And I've not at all been um, absolutely fangirling over you just before hitting record. (laughs) So we're going to be talking all about Ginger Snaps in this episode.
1: by 16, or dead in the scene, but together forever. United against life as we know it. Let's get out of here. Get down! What was it? A big dog, maybe. Whoa. Whoa? That's it? Whoa? I think you see werewolves a lot. Did I change last night? Howl at the
0: moon? How do you feel? Wicked. It. It's, you know, low-key one of my favorite horror films, but I wanted to ask you about your relationship with the film. When did you first watch it and how has your opinion of the film evolved over the years?
1: So I first kind of, I guess, stumbled onto Ginger Snaps um, when I was uh, in my teens. I mean, it came out in 2000, so I would have turned 15 that year. And I, and I think I saw it on um, video or Blu-ray or, or Blu-ray. We didn't have Blu-ray back then. Um, I saw it on uh, DVD or something similar probably a couple years later. Um, and it's... Is something that, it's an interesting film because I love it in and of itself, but then I also love it as a Canadian. Um, it's one of the, I think, many great emblems of Canadian horror, and uh, so I always feel a lot of pride. When I get to talk about it, mm-hmm. um, and I continue to appreciate the film. The older I get, the more subversive, the more taboo-breaking I see that it is, um, and it's it's such a rare film in so many ways. And I think, if anything, to me, it just it crystallized what it was like to be a teen girl when I was a teen girl. And then looking back and, you know, rewatching it recently, it still holds a place of like, God, yeah, that's what it was like to be a teen girl. You know, I didn't have like a Mean Girls experience. I didn't have that. It felt a lot more uh, primal and strange. And I think that's what Ginger Snaps, for me, captures.
0: You mentioned so many things there, and some of them I'm definitely going to pick up, ask you about in a bit, but... You mentioned that it feels like a rare film. What do you think makes it so rare?
1: I think at the most basic level, like just talking about having a period, um, it's uh, still a very taboo subject uh, for people. And so I think just the conversation around having a period is really Uh, impactful. And it's really important because as we all know, not every woman menstruates. But for those of us who do, it is something that we're kind of always told to keep private. Uh, It's something that's hidden away. It's something we're not meant to share. And so just the fact that um, there's a conversation and a main plot point around a character menstruating quite revolutionary to me it was you know mm. uh, it was like oh I'm also getting my period and it also hurts like a motherfucker um, <laughs> that feels great to at least see that recognized
0: yeah it really kind of makes the I mean it literally makes the period into an actual curse that transforms this teenage girl into an actual monster How do you think it uses the female body as both something that is sexualized by other people specifically and that is deemed monstrous and that becomes ultimately in the figure of Ginger as the actual monster of the film?
1: Well, I think it's a really interesting journey through uh, the Kristeva notion or her utilization of the abject, um, a site of uh, disgust horror, um, but we're also finding Ginger very attractive. She's becoming more confident. Um, And I also think it's so interesting that uh, the uh, beast of Bailey Downs comes for Ginger when uh, she uh, has her period because it can smell the blood. And uh, that's, you know, it's, it's these things that we don't want to talk about, which ultimately kind of keep returning to us because as Robin Wood says um, it's the return of the repressed and not to mix too many horror scholars in one conversation but in thinking about the abject the abject is something that is debased it is reviled often women's bodies are considered abject um, you know I think a really interesting example of the abject is when you know certainly back in my day uh, when there were commercials for uh, period pads they would use blue liquid rather than red because the red yeah. is deemed like upsetting um mm-hmm. whereas it's like god i look down a couple days a month at uh, my underwear and i can see that and oh i'm told that's disturbing um and so we are kind of taken on this journey with ginger that is um about self-discovery it's about sexuality it's about power it's about hunger it could be about addiction and we are told that or the society around her seems to think these things are really bad and meant to be really scary. Whereas I think the film itself, and I think for myself and a lot of people who watch it, it's not that what she's doing is good, killing people, but she's definitely, I don't think, a bad person. And I don't think she's a bad,
0: evil monster. Uh, She may
1: be monstrous, but I don't think she's evil.
0: Let's dig in, if we can, a bit into the Fitzgerald sisters, Ginger and Brigitte. So, What do you think of them as characters and their relationship in particular?
1: It feels like a really honest relationship. It feels, you know, where they have their closeness. They also deviate from each other a lot. They Mm. uh, have conflict. They also protect each other and they die for each other. And, you know, that's kind of what they're asked of each other in the end. Um, and, And I think there's a very special complicated bond that is portrayed on screen um, through this relationship. And it's one of the, you know, it's a complicated female relationship. And, and I think Mm -hmm. there's something very special about that. And also the depth of sisterhood, because so often in mainstream media, we are wanting to um, pit women against each other. Mm -hmm. But this film, while it's showing a complicated female relationship, doesn't, truly in my estimation pit uh ginger and bridget against each other it shows that they're in conflict but they're trying to reconcile it or it's certainly bridget is she's not willing to give up on her sister
0: absolutely and i wanted to talk a little bit about their respective character arcs which i always found really interesting because ginger is you know could be deemed from as both the protagonist and the monster of the film and Brigitte is a kind of more passive character that's reacting to her, but i've I've always sort of disagreed in seeing them as equals, and if not Brigitte more of a protagonist really, or like a secret protagonist in the film and I wanted to know what you think about their respective journeys throughout the the film and kind of how they end up and how their relate the tension in their relationship evolves and cracks eventually.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, because they are so deeply linked together, uh, Ginger's transformation necessitates a transformation in Bridget. Uh, She can't go on the way she is because uh, while she's dark and interesting and very much alive, she's much more of an introvert and I think plays a more prototypical final girl kind of role In this film, and she is the audience viewpoint because audiences, you know, we don't have a lot of experience turning into werewolves, but we've experienced (laughs) the conflict, uh, feeling confused, um, Mm. trying to help someone when they're in a bad situation. Those are all very human things. Mm. So, you know, I think Bridget um, offers us. A way through this film and a journey through this film that feels very uh, familiar and human, and it allows us and it allows us to be a bit of a voyeur through Ginger's much more fantastical transformation. It we get to have that bit of uh, thrill seeking.
0: Yeah, and one of the things I remember watch when I watched it as a teenage girl for the first time, one of the things that really struck me was obviously their the way that they were pitting themselves against everyone else in their high school. And my relationship with the film has evolved and I've seen so many new things and layers to it as I've rewatched it over the years and growing up. But when you're watching it as a teenage girl, one of the things that really strikes you is that they are very much misfits and outsiders, but also not necessarily presenting themselves as victims of bullying or of the mean girls. They And they fight back and they're just as aggressive as the as the bullies in their high school. And the other aspect of them that I found also very interesting is the fact that they're so death-obsessed and very morbid. Like, that title sequence, that um, the title credit sequence of the film is visually very different from the rest of the movie. And it's also an interesting one because it is entirely from their perspective. It's their project for their school class. And I wanted I wonder if you had any thoughts about kind of their personas within kind of this high school environment and how they fit or maybe even created sort of this image of these gothy, morbid girls.
1: So I think one of the, the things that um this film does really well and certainly something I very much related to when I was in high school and then, you know, seeing this film is that um, I didn't have a particularly bad high school experience, but I didn't enjoy it. I was mainly pretty bored the whole time. And I was like anxious to get out of it and do something, uh, more interesting or, or more attuned to my interest, you know? So even, you know, what is their quote, uh, out by 16 or dead on the scene, but together forever like yeah. that, I think resonates to me because, uh, and that's actually part of the tragedy of this film is they understand that there is an out, there is an out and they have to fucking drive for it and they need to get there and go. Um, And that they need to essentially survive high school and then they can go on and do whatever the hell they want. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think the tragedy is, is that it's not that high school consumes consumes them it's their circumstance consumes them um and you know beaten in this you know insular small town they were out trying to you know prank people and and you know got bitten by a werewolf it's you know a tale as old as time um but they they're foresight into their future, their desire for a future is what's so interesting. Um, mm. You know, and I, to me, certainly made them very relatable. And uh, I think, you know, what ultimately becomes very tragic for Bridget as you jump into the sequels um, you see what happens to her that...
0: Um, the other kind of part of the question that I was getting at is kind of their morbid obsession with death. Um, and how do you think kind of that plays into the way that they exist kind of almost as their own archetypes in teen movies.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there is a kind of uh, sex, death, rock and roll fascination that um, the media certainly likes to lob at teens. Um, I think death is possibly a more interesting interest for the characters to have over something like horror films which you know was all the rage with scream and the self-referential style at the time Mm. um but i I think the death and the setting of the suburbs um the the notion like dead on the scene or you know out by 16 all of this stuff there is a kind of A sense of the tactile nature of life that they both have. Um, Even though they kind of sneer at so much of the bullshit they put up with um, Mm. or are forced to put up with for the time being, uh, there is a a, a sense that there is something else to be had in this world and that they want to go for it. They want to do something else with it rather than remain in a suburb um,
0: and exist there. You mentioned. Suburbia quite a bit, and there's something you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation kind of about it being a, a very important film in Canadian horror cinema in particular. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how do you think this works also as a suburban horror, and maybe even particularly as a Canadian suburban horror. It's something that I find sometimes gets forgotten about. Ginger Snaps, maybe because of its international appeal or maybe because it's very, um, specific as well in that, in that regard,
1: in that regard. Yeah. Well, I think it certainly functions, um, as, uh- you know, for, for maybe a viewer who isn't Canadian or doesn't, you know, go and read the Wikipedia page, it functions as a really great suburban horror film. Um, and for that, that always means to me a kind of a, an necessitation of rebellion against a status quo, particularly a Reagan-era status quo. Um, you know, I, I would also put Nightmare on Elm Street in the same category for that very mm-hmm. reason. Um, there was, you know, the quote-unquote white flight in the 70s and 80s to the suburbs, uh, even before that, you know, 50s and 60s in North America, particularly in the States, but also in Canada as well, um, where people wanted to get away from what they perceived to be urban violence, which was really just scare tactics, um, wanting to kind of shift baby boomers away from, um, you know, a certain type of racism. You know, mm-hmm. and you could escape and you could go and, you know, seemingly live this very safe life. Um, and it, it's, you know, a very strange notion to have. Um, and yeah, and I think it kind of speaks to this isolated community and the fear, the monsters, the damage, the violence that can be uh, present within it. Um, and the shock is, is that we all went, we all went to these places, we all moved to these places to be safe, and now there's a fucking werewolf? (laughs) What the fucking fuck? Um, And it's, it's, so it's a very uh, notion of that kind of, like, the drawbridge is up, we're all up in the castle, we're fine, Mm -hmm. and then to see that become scary, to see it become violent, to see it become unsafe, is, I think, uh, an inherently unsettling thing.
0: And what do you make of the relationship with the Fitzgerald sisters with their parents?
1: I really, really enjoy the parents in this film, particularly Mimi mm-hmm. Rogers as the yes. mom. Um, she's just so tonally perfect as this almost pseudo-Stepford wife. But by the end of the film, we the audience certainly I feel like I've seen enough from this character to know like oh she's actually way more savvy than anyone is giving her credit for mm-hmm. um and I think that's certainly the journey that I went on with my parents and I think a lot of people go on with their parents when you know uh if you're growing up and you're like oh mom oh dad you don't know what it's like and then you get out and you get into the world a bit and you're like no we all actually we maybe didn't go through the same stuff but you've been through your own stuff, and I see that stuff in you. And and I think the um, uh, kind of journey for uh, Mrs. Fitzgerald is is a really lovely one, and it's it's something you don't often get to see that much, where you've got a stereotypical, archetypal kind of figure uh, who actually is granted a certain amount of humanity and character.
0: I've really enjoyed the way that this film blends kind of the teenage or almost preteen idea of kind of solving a mystery and trying to find a solution or an antidote for something and the way that Brigitte goes on this is the same journey with Sam the the teenage drug dealer that she sort of has a crush on um what do you make of the way it kind of incorporates these teen movie tropes as well into this horror into the suburban horror scenario
1: well, I think they, they've always kind of been present. I mean, if you think back to Nancy Thompson figuring out who Freddy Krueger is, um, there is an aspect there, and, and I think the uh, this is where horror often gets conflated with a thriller. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's where I also don't think it's necessarily a wrong thing or a bad thing. There is an element to mystery, because you know, if but it takes a while for Freddy uh, Freddie or Jason or Michael to be enough to watch so that we're going to watch them just slash and kill all the teens in front of us. Um, mm-hmm. but in the early stages, you need a bit of mystery. You need to uncover like, what is this thing? I find it very interesting that the film doesn't really go into like, who was that werewolf? Who was that first werewolf mm-hmm. uh, that we encounter in the film? Obviously the sequels try to tackle some element of that. Um, but it's very much about this kind of mythology of folklore, things like that. You know, it was, you know, present in, um, you know, Nightmare on the Streets, present in films before that. It was present in Buffy, you know, certainly the TV series. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having a big set happen in a library was very important to that those stories. Uh, so I think you do get that there, that we need to see these characters go on a journey I mean, to understand the mythology. We need to understand the mythology this film is presenting to us. Um, and it's interesting to watch characters grow with knowledge. And that's what we want to see. How do they intake knowledge? How do they apply it? What do they try next? What works? What doesn't work?
0: And how do you think it actually updates the werewolf movie?
1: I think it feminizes it in a kind of riot girl, a uh, girl power kind of way. Um, that was certainly very prescient when I was growing up as a young woman. Um, it Fair, all of that kind of stuff. There was a sense that you could be a woman, you could be angry, and your presence was valid, Uh, Mm -hmm. certainly in some spheres of popular culture. uh, I do not say it was, you know, welcome in every stage of culture, but I think there was a sense that at least women talking to other women and in certain other communities uh, Mm -hmm. that, you know, you could scream and shout and be popular and other people felt the same way. So I think there is a sense that uh, there's – an anger, a societal critique, a modernity to this film that I find very vital and very interesting. And I mean, the, the original title of this thing was, um, the film was uh, Wolfer Girls, but girls spelled like Riot Girl.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and they, they, which changed, um, obviously in production, but I always kind of took it to have this like
0: Riot Girl-esque mentality. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that before And in- where do you think it kind of manifests? Because I like could definitely sense the the teenage anger of it, even rewatching it. But it was always it always seemed very tinged with sadness for me. So how do you think the the Riot Girl mentality and culture is visible in the film?
1: I think in the fact that they were creating art, they were creating content, um, they were active in those spaces. Uh, They were unapologetic and they saw, again, like I was talking about, they thought about their future. They wanted to get out of this place. They wanted to go and do something else that wasn't here where their art and their ideas would be appreciated. Um, And the tragedy of this film kind of being that certainly Ginger uh, dies at the end of the film. And um, so I think that, that desire to create, the desire to find your own community is, is certainly to me a, a few of the really big things I take away from Riot Girl, uh, from that movement and, and what I see present
0: in Ginger Snaps. I'd love to talk a little bit more about the performances, particularly Catherine Isabel and Emily Perkins. What do you make of their approaches to her characters?
1: I think they're great. I think they, they interact like sisters. They, um, they, they have that kind of easy bond and relationship. Um, and, and I like how, uh, kind of outsider they feel without being like a caricature of themselves. Um, and that's really cool. It's, it's a hard thing to pull off. And, um, you know, I, I think it's notable that both of them are from, um, British Columbia, here in Canada, I believe they're both Mm. in Vancouver. I may be wrong on that. Uh, But because when the film was announced, there was such an outrage after Columbine that the Canadian um, Film Centre, where where a lot of the creators got together to make this film, could produce Mm -hmm. such a violent film about teenagers. And so all the casting directors in Toronto refused, which is one of our main casting hubs, refused to have anything to do with it. So uh, the production team was forced to quote unquote, look elsewhere into one of the other major hubs we have here in Canada and wound up finding the two, I think, most perfect um, actors for the role in Vancouver. And I don't know if you would have found them if you would have gotten to that same conclusion had you been doing all these big auditions uh, with possibly more name recognizable actors uh, in Toronto.
0: That's incredible. I didn't realize there was such a up about the production of the film when it was first funded.
1: Uh, well, I mean, Canadians, we get real uppity about what um, we fund because certainly here in Canada, uh, the government plays and the funding bodies, the the agencies mm-hmm. that it employs, most notably in this case, Telefilm, Telefilm Canada, uh, people get real uppity about it, funding horror films, genre films. There hasn't been a big like scandal about it, I don't think, in the last 10 say? I could be wrong. But certainly in the last while, I haven't heard too much um, pearl clutching about it. But, I mean, that goes all the way back to like Shivers and Cronenberg and, and those mm-hmm. films. But, yeah, no, there was a real um, there was a real upset when uh, Ginger Snaps or Wolfer Girls, it might have been at that stage,
0: but um, when it was announced. I wanted to go a little bit deeper into Ginger's transformation and kind of how she evolves and how how her transformation is presented to us because it is very much a transformation into a monster into a werewolf in slow motion she undergoes a lot of emotional as well as physical transformations and changes in her personality in her demeanor the way she carries herself Uh, what did you think of this kind of um extreme puberty that she goes through I think
1: it's in many ways a very typical one for these kind of films. Essentially, when you have a female, essentially when you have a female monster, not in every case, uh, but to speak mm. very generally about it, I find there's always a sexual component to it. Um, you know, having a, a kind of sexuality, a, a power in sex, and um, and I'm not mad at that. I don't think it's copping out because I think. Uh, all women, especially young women, are told that sexuality, our sexuality is something to be fearful of. It's something to protect. It's something to, you know, watch the guys around you. Um, And it's never, rarely, if ever, talks about sex as being pleasurable and being enjoyable and learning about what you like. So I think there is, uh, I think it's a very powerful message to show a transformation Mm. I personally don't see ginger and the transformation coded as evil um, and Mm -hmm. have to show this kind of power, to show a power that is like, I want to do it and uh, I want to figure out how to do it. Of course, it then takes a kind of uh, turn into like addiction and and things like that. But these are all very pressing things that... um, young people feel and especially young women feel because we are told to be the protectors and the caregivers and so to watch someone kind of go through that journey i I think it's really powerful and i don't personally when i watched it and now watching you know in the multiple times i've seen it since i don't Mm. feel like there's a lot of shame or stigma attached to it it feels very
0: honest Mm. oh yeah i don't see ginger coded as being evil either in fact if anything i find it really interesting that she in this kind of slow motion transformation that she undergoes it is involuntary because she her body is reacting to this you know this werewolf's curse but also she is kind of trying to manage it as well as possible because it is uncontrollable and unstoppable but also at no point is she um, actively, she does hurt people, but I found it interesting that she never actually hurts another teenage girl or another woman. There's only one point where one of their high school bullies dies, but that is an accident, and it's made very, very clear by the film that it's an accident. She only really attacks uh, young men and, well, you know, teenage boys, really. But it always feels like it's beyond her control. Like, she's trying very hard to control this new power that she's growing into and a lot of it is coded as sexual power but it's always somewhat beyond her which is where this theme or almost this reading of her as being an addict comes in and it's only really something that i started seeing into it when i watched it as a rewatched it as an adult even in kind of in Catherine isabel's performance so i wonder if you think that there is kind of an element there of this unwilling transformation, as perhaps a a take on addiction.
1: Yeah, no, I mean absolutely. You know, when she she's kind of, I guess, saying at the end, like she can't stop. Um, mm. That's you know, I think it's a really powerful, scary, and simple sentiment, um, and feeling out of control is a scary place to be and it's a hard thing to be. It's a hard thing to watch a loved one go through. And, you know, we we have to negotiate a lot of things around that. And I, I think there is a really visceral nature that this film captures about um that that need that's not a want it's it's not a desire it's a need Mm. and that's something that I think people are very scared of because we don't necessarily know how to fully treat it we have ideas we have some things that work some things that don't it's different for every person and so to actually come really close to it is a very scary thing
0: There's a larger kind of theme, I think, that you you sort of mentioned a little bit before and that I noted as well uh, when I was thinking about this film. And it's kind of this idea of hunger, especially kind of of this ravenous, uncontrollable hunger in, in women in particular. And be that for, you know, blood or flesh or sex or connection or just belonging. And I was wondering if you could expand a little bit about how you think this film, you know, explores the idea of hunger
1: they have these desires, they have desires to move on to, to go do other things in other places, but, um, uh, they have to wait a bit longer and then these other desires begin to take over uh, and it becomes insurmountable and the change becomes so noticeable that, uh, things have to change or she has to die. So she does. Um, and, and I think the hunger thing is, you know, it's, uh, we see in Mrs. Fitzgerald a kind of, um, acceptance of the things in the past mm-hmm. and in a way to be in a way to live and and I think the hunger um can be construed as something wanting more and uh society has a lot of feelings about people wanting more and how to keep them in their place so um I, I think this film shows a very real need for that hunger that it's a natural desire that it's you know not necessarily that out of the realm of, you know, being rational, but it's also um, something that is scary because there isn't a place for it. There isn't a place for Ginger um, other than her death or figuring out how she can be a human again.
0: I wonder what you think about how this film fits into our idea of the female monster on screen.
1: Um, I think it's, it's part of a, a tradition. I, I think it's kind of kicks off, um, a more, uh, contemporary view of it. Um, I think, you know, a a very, uh, close relative of this film is is something like Jennifer's body and, um, you know, it's, it's creating female antiheroes and, uh, you know, male antiheroes have been around and glorified for decades. And I think kind of, um, it's only been in you know the last few decades uh, that female um, antiheroes have become kind of a thing, and I think Ginger is a great example of one. Um, that a monster is understandable. It is vital. It is uh, something that is meant to shake up society. It is meant to que- for us to question why isn't there more space in society for other ways of being, um, rather than a very prescribed, societally accepted notion. Um, And, and, you know, I think other films uh, ask those questions too. Um, I I think Ginger Snaps kind of kicks it off in a new millennium kind of way.
0: Um, How do you think this film actually, which came out in the year 2000, so 20 years ago, how do you think it fits into the trend of horror films that came just before it?
1: Um. Yeah, I think it definitely uh, pulls some, um, some elements from them. It kind of shares a similar um, aesthetic style, but it's not nearly as glossy um, or as kind of star powery as uh, the other ones. And because it's, you know, essentially an independent production, uh, they could be a bit more edgy in terms of, uh, the sentiments and the way they talk mm-hmm. about being a teenager and in terms of that kind of stuff so when you don't have a big studio backing where you have to you know hire a noticeable or a noticeable person a uh, mm-hmm. notable person rather um, but you know they could have a bit more um, they could have a bit more freedom and the stuff they wanted to say and how they wanted to say it, say it while still utilizing the really uh, popular, cool things that people were into at the time that, you know, a kid like me would have been like, yeah, I get this, I know that aesthetic, I want to partake in that. But it can do a bit more, um, even though I think there's some great elements to those films. But uh, yeah, they they can be a bit more uh, subversive and a bit more edgy.
0: For people who don't um, perhaps have kind of the overview that you have of teen horror in the nineties and kind of early two thousands kind of what were those birth strokes characteristics of teen horrors at the time? And how do you think to just not subverted them?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, they're very, um, the, the films of the horror films, the teen horror films in particular of the 1990s are Mm -hmm. often, um, studio made films. So they have a sizable budget, a budget that they are expected to recoup. Uh, Mm -hmm. they feature, Uh, recognizable stars, you know, whether that be a Nev Campbell, who was on Party of Five, whether it be a Sarah Michelle Gellar, who was on Buffy, a Jennifer Love Hewitt, also on Party of Five. Um, They have a bit of star power, a bit of clout to them. And um, they were very uh, self-referential because, uh, you know, as teens and preteens and, you know, horror fans in the 90s, we were existing with a fair amount of uh, reverb. Back from culture, we were watching culture that was commenting on culture. So it makes sense that the horror films of that era would also want to comment on the stuff that was going on around them and call out that the characters actually had a knowledge of pop culture and could comment on the proceedings in front of them. Um, and, I, and so I think uh, Ginger Snaps takes that kind of aesthetic, a uh, kind of slightly edgy, but um, you know, attractive way of being a teen. Um, It's less glossy, it's a bit more unrefined, um, and and also takes the kind of self-referential elements to it. Uh, You know, the characters talking about, you know, in kind of slang and referencing various things in pop culture um, all over the place, so it feels quite normal to them and to us.
0: I wanted to kind of ask a a much broader question, and mostly this This comes from the one line that they say very early on in the film when they're watching a horror movie. And there's something that Brigitte says to Ginger where she's like, you don't think our death should be more than cheap entertainment? Um, And they're very freaked out by the idea of everyone just kind of staring at their dead bodies. And this comes kind of within the context of them working on their project and, you know, which we see all of um, in the title credit sequence. But I think there's, a, there's somewhat of a statement there about the relationship between women and women's bodies in particular and horror cinema. And I was wondering if, if that's what you thought of the way that Ginger Snap kind of comments either directly or indirectly on the relationship between women and watching themselves in horror cinema.
1: I think it definitely attempts to delve into the stories behind sensationalized stories uh, that, um, you know, you can see deaths and women's deaths splattered all over the news. um, Mm. And they are sensational and they can cause uh, movements. They can also just be kind of news of the day. But to actually spend time with them to understand that these two uh, young women are, in fact, people and humans also revolutionary um (laughs) that they have thoughts and feelings and things that they want to accomplish with their lives and you know a simple werewolf attack can derail those things um you know and i I think it uh on one hand i think it wants to with that line it wants to acknowledge that there is a certain prescience of horror films for me those horror films mainly exist in um In the 80s when you get into some of the especially the latter sequels of some of the major horror franchises where you're just watching character after character and I use the term character a bit loosely here even though I love those (laughs) films uh, get killed off and killed off again and again and again and it doesn't really matter Um, to me uh, what's interesting about the 90s teen horror cycle is that because you had some star power behind these characters uh, they were often given a bit more depth than their predecessors, uh, you know, even as someone as beloved as Laurie Strode, didn't mm-hmm. have a whole bunch of backstory, didn't have a whole bunch of character. Uh, it helped that she was played by a really talented actor, uh, in Jamie Lee Curtis, but it wasn't a lot of time spent on um, Laurie and her thoughts and feelings and the backstory and you know all of these things that happened to her uh, until Halloween H2O. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's, they're kind of commenting on, um, to me, in my mind, I, I take that line as something just a bit more of an older uh, reading, a
0: bit more of a popular culture kind of reading of horror films. To start kind of wrapping up our conversation, I wanted to ask you kind of, um, why do you think, we've mentioned that Ginger dies, and this is something that happens to quite a lot, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to generalise so much as to say that to every female monster on screen that I've encountered, but certainly to quite a few. Um, Do you think that it, why do you think it's necessary for Ginger to to die at the end of the film? If you think it is necessary at all.
1: I mean, I don't think it is. Um, I think it's, uh, it's the way most of these films have wrapped up. I think it's hard to make a film where the monster survives at the end, because what then do you do with that monster? Um, you know, the, the monstrousness just like Jennifer's body gets transferred over to someone else very close to them. But, mm. um, even then it's, it's their society doesn't have a place for people that it deems to be quote unquote monstrous. Um, mm. so, and I think that's, that's often a challenge that, uh, films have, and, you know, even the most Um, You know, and I can, you know, there's plenty of films that I think are progressive and interesting, but in the end, have to have the monster die because there's almost no other way out. uh, Mm. Because I think it's hard to tell a story um, with monsters. Kind of just being a part of the world, unless you're like making a Hellboy movie in are Carmel Del Toro. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's I think it's really tricky because it's hard to get. Films have to get financed. Films have to get made by a bunch of different people. So, what better uh, plot synopsis then it's that these two uh, kind of misfit but really cool teen girls. One of them turns into a werewolf. Goes through a whole Kind of awakening her sisters you know trying to save her uh then at the end the sister who's not a werewolf learns some stuff about herself and the werewolf sister dies like that's much more viable than you know now we've got a world with a bunch of werewolves running around because then you've got basically <laughs> an underworld movie <laughs>
0: Without going too much into them, what do you think about the the wider Ginger Snaps universe? And I'm obviously referencing the two se- the sequel and prequel that followed the original Ginger Snaps, uh, Ginger Snaps Two: Unleashed, and then Ginger Snaps Back: The Beginning.
1: Um, so I wrote an article about them, which you probably still find online. Um, it's, it was part of, uh, it's when I was writing for Shock Till You Drop, so I think it's now coming soon dot net. Um, but you should be able to find them on there. So I think that's kind of where I downloaded most of my opinions about them. Um, they're, they're okay. They're not great. I wouldn't rewatch
0: them. That's, that's fair enough. That's my take. Yeah. <laughs> You've mentioned Jennifer's Body a few times throughout the conversation and the the parallels are are, are very much there. You know, how do you feel the influence or the legacy of Ginger Snaps on that film in particular?
1: Um, I'm not sure if Ginger Snaps had a direct uh, influence on Jennifer's Body, even though you know, Jennifer's Body was written by Diablo Cody, who's mm-hmm. uh, seemingly quite a big horror fan. I think it would be fair to assume that Diablo Cody might have seen Ginger Snaps, I would not be surprised if she did. Um, I think it's, you know, what I see there is, you know, two films struggling to tell a similar story. Um, I mean, Ginger Snaps did next to nothing on, on its release, not a surprise for a Canadian film. However, it found its audience in, like, VHS rental, DVD rental, all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's similar for Jennifer's Body, but with Jennifer's Body, it wasn't a little Canadian film that was partially financed by the government. It was a major studio film by an Oscar-winning screenwriter um, that was seen as a flop. It had major stars, decent budget. Um, so when it fell, quote-unquote, upon its initial release, because, as we all know, the story of the shitty marketing... Um, It it was seen as a much bigger fail, and it was seen that, oh, people actually don't want to watch this kind of movie. People don't want to go see it, so we won't make them. Um, However, no one, or very few times does Hollywood actually anticipate, oh my goodness, there's actually a huge cult following. Let's, um, you know, let's see, let's stay the course with this film, and let's champion it and celebrate it uh, throughout all of its iterations, and not just its theatrical
0: release. To end kind of on a, on a lighter note and not two films that failed, failed quote-unquote, at the box office upon their release, it's definitely, I mean, it sounds that it struck a chord with you as a teenager, it definitely struck a chord with me as a teen girl as well. It kind of continues finding its audience through people accessing it in different ways. What do you think about it is that, about the original Ginger Snaps that strikes a chord even now?
1: I think in some ways it's a very simple film and it's a simple story, uh, but it's very well told and the characters are really likable. The performances are great. Um, I think if you like this film, you fall in love with the Fitzgerald sisters and you see some part of yourself in them and you care about them and um, you know, you want to see what they get up to and how uh, they navigate these really strange, uncertain territories that the, that the story takes them to Um, and then layering in that some of the progressive feminist stuff we were talking about the suburban aspects these are all little like breadcrumbs throughout the story that make it feel more real and make it feel like an escapist version of a lived reality and I I think that's what we're always looking for we're looking for something that feels familiar but also takes us somewhere else Um, and, and I think that's what a good movie will do
0: Alex, thank you so much for your time and for all of your incredible insight on Ginger Snaps. And where can people find out more about your work online?
1: Um, Yeah, so uh, you can check out the Faculty of Horror that I co-host with Andrea Supasati. Uh, We're on all the major podcatchers. You can also find us at facultyofhorror.com. And uh, for all the stuff I get up to on my own, um, if you're on Twitter, you can follow me at
0: ScareAlex. Amazing. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. And that is it for this episode of the final ghost podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. If you can, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help a lot. And you can find out more about what we've got coming up over on the final And you can follow us on Twitter Instagram and Facebook at the final ghost UK. You can also follow Alex on Twitter at scarealex, And I will be tweeting only about ginger snaps for the foreseeable future over on an Anna be demented. Thank you for listening and next week we'll be discussing a mad eater of a very different kind.